Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts. Hello and happy Halloween, Old Soul Movie Podcast family. It has been a minute. We've definitely been a little bit on a hiatus. Um, We're kind of working through some new scheduling things, so episodes won't be coming out as frequently, but we are hoping to do at least a couple for the remainder of the year until we get a good schedule on track. So today we are covering a movie that the novelist Stephen King once referred to as one of the scariest films of all time. That's right, we are covering The Night Hunter from 1955. So this is a movie that I had never seen before up until last week. I'd never really heard of it before, to be quite honest. I saw that it was playing in a theater as a Halloween special. And when I looked up the reviews, or like, you know, kind of the Wikipedia summary, I was just so surprised because it basically said when this movie came out, it was a failure. No one really liked it. Yada, yada, yada. Um, But then in recent years, it's been acclaimed as one of the greatest films ever made. So that really piqued my interest. And I can't wait to go over today with Ben and Isabella. Ben and Isabella, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) How's your Halloween season so far? Oh, it's been magical. You know how much I love Halloween. It's the best holiday of all the holidays. Ben is shaking his head just to be different right now. I just, everyone knows there's only one real holiday. It's called the holiday season when Christmas comes to protect. Okay, just, but Ben, not trying. everyone celebrates Christmas. So yes, clearly yeah, it's, there's not only the other, one holiday. Okay, but actually all the other religions have adopted a holiday around that time. So they get to also participate in the holiday seasons. I wouldn't say they adopted one just because Christmas existed, but that's neither here nor there right now. I don't know. I I mean, it's kind of odd that they're all around the same time. That's weird, right? So anyway, it's Halloween and we're excited to cover this sort of horror thriller movie. Yeah, this is a really different film. It's very artistic, in my opinion. It's very experimental. And I'm excited because I went into this without really, really knowing anything. I didn't look up like behind the scenes. I didn't look up fun facts. I didn't look up anything other than knowing that it was a failure when it came out and then became praised later. Are you on the phone? It's always hilarious when people take phone calls during podcasts. It's literally <laughs> never not funny. You don't watch many podcasts. I'm a, I do. I am an expert. Okay. On Maybe the ones that I watch are professional enough where they edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> if you wanted something professional, you'd be watching a television. You'd be watching House of the Dragon. Okay. But people come <laughs> to podcasts for raw, unfiltered entertainment. Uh, well, PSA, everyone should watch House of the Dragon. I had control over this podcast, Emma. Let's just say it would be very <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. You know It'd what, Ben? Maybe just sold. for you, I'll keep that little bit in. New movie soul. <laughs> new soul movie is what I meant to say. 
But let's get into the basic info on this movie. It is directed by Charles Lawton. So Charles Lawton, prolific actor. We've seen him before as Cosimoto from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, oh, look at that. I know. A little bit of a connection there. Very exciting. That would make sense. So he was used to directing theater on the stage. He was mostly a stage director. This was the first and only film he ever directed. And we'll touch more upon that in a little bit. The screenplay was by James Agee. It was based off of the 1953 novel, The Night of the Hunter by Davis Grubb. It was produced by Paul Gregory. The cinematography is by Stanley Cortez. So Stanley Cortez, uh, he also worked on Magnificent Ambersons from 1942. That's an Orson Welles movie. And he said that Orson Welles and Charles Lawton were really the only directors that he worked with that understood the power of lighting. So that I think is really, really cool. Orson Welles is obviously a very prolific director. um, And even though Charles Lawton only did one, I think that that's really saying something. The production company was Paul Gregory Productions. So keep in mind, this is kind of like not one of the major studios coming out with this too, which I think could factor into a film success if this is a little bit more indie back in the day. It was released July 26, 1955. Its running time is 92 minutes. So honestly, not that big of a time commitment. Uh, They fit a lot in, in my opinion, in that 92 minutes. I think that it's a pretty perfect length. If anything, they could have shortened some things up. But yeah, it's. I think it is totally worth your time if you're looking for an hour and a half of entertainment. So let's get into the cast because it's a pretty, pretty good, noteworthy cast. We have Robert Mitchum as Reverend Harry Powell. Okay, so let's <laughs> backtrack a little bit. They were actually considering Gary Cooper for this role, but Gary Cooper thought that it would be pretty bad for his career to play such an evil, villainous, disgusting person. So he passed on it. Robert Mitchum is a prolific actor. He's honestly considered one of the best of all time. Weirdly enough, we really haven't covered a lot of his films or talked about him a ton on the podcast. So it's, it's about darn time. You know, it is about darn time because he's a pretty handsome man. Oh, I yeah. Think we're missing he's out. <laughs> he's great. Um, he's really well known for playing bad guys with an engrossing quality or anti-heroes. Some of his works include the original Max Cady in the original Cape Fear. And this kind of gives me similar vibes to that character. So Cape Fear didn't come out until 1962, though. So there's a good chance that this film influenced that one. Definitely, definitely influenced the 90s one for sure. But we'll touch base on that later. He's also been in Out of the Past. He starred with Marilyn Monroe in River of No Return. He was in Thunder Road. Uh, He was in the miniseries Winds of War, which I think we mentioned on the last episode, among many, 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 many other movies and television serials. So it's kind of funny with him because he's considered so, so talented. But when he's talked about his approach to acting, he's always said it's the easiest job in the world. You just show up there, say the lines, do what they tell you to do, and you leave. That's it. (laughs) So that's his opinion on it. 
And there is a little controversy with that. Some people actually don't think he's that talented. Some people think it's not an effortless performance as much as it is his little effort. Um, <laughs> and But most directors that he did work with considered him one of the best that they ever worked with and said that that was just putting up a front and that he really did care and worked super hard on bringing yeah. those characters to life. That's cool. That's just swag. Just saying you're not trying hard at something when you are to make it not a big deal. That's just being humble is really what it is. <laughs> I see that. I see that. I'm buying that that might be the real story because I think he's just so good and there's no way that you can not try <laughs> to get that kind of performance. Nobody likes the kind of the person who's always saying their job is so hard. It's like, <laughs> Um, and then Robert Mitchum, I believe, in a later interview in his life, said that Charles Lawton was one of his favorite directors he ever worked with. Hmm. I believe it was mutual from Charles Lawton. He said that Robert Mitchum was one of the best and he could have played like Macbeth, you know. So lots of good praise there. Good working relationship behind the scenes. Um, Shelley Winters as Willa Harper. Shelly Winters, incredible actress. We've seen her before in a few things, I think. Uh, we've seen her before in A Place in the Sun from 1951. There are a lot of similarities in her character's stories in both of those movies. Spoiler alert, her character is intended to be murdered in A Place in the Sun. So it's really interesting, and I think they picked her for this one, which came out after A Place in the Sun, because they believe she had this vulnerable quality to her um so i'm just i'm really curious if there are any scholarly articles out there reviewing shelly winters as an actress and playing murder victims and if that impacted her or casting choices i don't know i just think that that is worth noting for sure and then we have lillian gish as rachel cooper lillian gish she is the original movie star and i mean original. She's known as the first lady of American cinema. She worked as an actress for 75 years. Uh, she was in so, so, so many of the most famous silent pictures from the 1910s through the 1920s. And she acted when the sound came to film. Her first film came out in 1912. The last movie she starred in came out in 1987. So that is very cool. She is an absolute legend. That is pretty sick. She was great in this movie. Oh, she, I mean, she's a winner. She's, she's a winner, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of funny. So Charles Lawton, I guess, approached her for this role and was interested in her. And she was like, you know, why, why do you want me so bad for this role? Um, and Charles Lawton said something which I think is really interesting in that. When he first went to the movies, people sat straight up and leaned forward. And then nowadays, people slump down with their heads back and eat candy and popcorn. And that he wanted people to sit up straight again. So I think that that's really cool to like bring back this woman who was like part of those initial exciting film movements to bring her back here. And we'll talk more about it when we get into the rewatch. But this movie has a lot, lot lot of artistic influence from silent pictures it's it's a really cool tie-in to bring her back and kind of pay homage to her in the films that started this industry while telling a new story 
And then we have Billy Chapin as John Harper. We have Sally Jane Bruce as Pearl Harper. We have Jane Gleason as Uncle Bertie Steptoe. We have Evelyn Varden as Icy Spoon. We have Don Beto as Walt Spoon. And then we have Peter Graves as Ben Harper. You might recognize Peter Graves as Captain Clarence Over from the movie Airplane from 1980. Oh, Ben loves Airplane. <laughs> so back to the movie. Uh, when this came out, it was, like I said, a critical and commercial failure. However, in recent lists, it is consistently ranked as one of the greatest movies ever made. It was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1992, which is a relatively early pick, in my opinion. So clearly was thought of as a good film by that point in time. Um, And there's a bunch of others. I think on one list, it was listed as the second greatest movie after Citizen Kane. So it's really crazy to see it do such a 180. Um, And I think that part of that came to, it kind of had a cult classic following to it. And that group and keeping it relevant and alive, I feel like was able to bring it back into the spotlight over the years. I can see why people at the time did not like this movie. You know, you're saving up, you get to go to the movies once a month. You're on a cute little date. And it's just a super slow, overly dramatic, weird little changing shots all the time. You're like, what is happening? Can we just get a story here? It's an artsy movie. It's it's Way the definition of an experimental film. Yeah. I think um, like people like it now because we consume 45 movies a week and content is nothing. <laughs> but back when you only got to watch one movie a fucking month, you were, or you were probably like, wow, this is kind of a bummer. So on that note, a lot of people say that that is the reason that this is the only film Charles Lawton ever directed, because he was like, yep, that was a failure. I guess I'm done with this. Never doing it again. That is sad. Poor guy. And it was it's kind of a bummer. He was actually supposed to direct the movie adaptation of Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, which we talked about on our last podcast episode, which apparently did the book very dirty. I know that that's kind of like a weird book Um, and seeing Charles Lawton's style here and learning a little bit more about Norman Mailer's weird style. I think we were deprived of a really amazing match and it could have been a really, really well executed movie in my opinion. So it's kind of a bummer that things went the way they went. And then others say that Charles Lawton just preferred directing on the stage and that's why he stopped doing movies still acted in them, just didn't direct. So this is based off of the novel, The Night Hunter, 1953. So the antagonist in this movie is based off of Dutch-born American serial killer, Harry Powers. And I know that when Charles Lawton read the book, he was like, okay, this is a nightmarish mother goose story, which I think is the most accurate description of what this movie is like. Scary fairy tale. Yeah, I would agree. It's a little whimsical. <laughs> like a scary fairy tale. He's like the big bad wolf or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge mix between a lot of the tropes like Hansel and Gretel and Red Riding Hood and Cinderella, but with a serial killer instead of anything magical. <laughs> so on that note, I think it's really important to kind of mind. I know that there's definitely been some controversy with portraying these real life stories and real life people and real life situations where 
there were serial killers or murder or really harrowing experiences that happened to actual real life victims for entertainment purposes. Um, and it is, it's a really tricky, fine line, honestly. Um, I know that we're currently facing that with the Jeffrey Dahmer series that came out. I haven't watched it, but I know that that definitely uh, garnered a lot of criticism from the surviving family members of the victims. So with this, it's not true to the real life story at all. I mean, it is to the extent where it, the killer married widows for their money and killed them, but it it removes itself enough where I think you can look at this movie from the philosophical point of view it's trying to show. I'd agree. It's kind of like, and I didn't watch the new Watcher series either, but it kind of reminds me of the approach that was taken in that where it's like, okay, there's a thread of truth. They change the names and really embellish things with things that didn't happen. Um, And that's kind of the situation that we have here. I think for any situation in which a piece of fiction is based off of a true story, I think it's always respectful to look up the real life events and just acknowledge that there were real people that were killed or hurt. Yeah. So this movie made me think about how death is portrayed in storytelling media as a whole. You know, there are some movies where a character dies and it's just an absolutely devastating event, but then there's a ton of action movies where the body count is just super high and you don't get to know any of those names or faces. So I don't know, this movie kind of made me reflect on that a little bit because death does show up in this movie in such a variety of ways, out of love, out of hate, out of survival, out of a twisted perception of life. There are a lot of shadowy themes that are addressed in this movie, and it is it is complex because it's so beautiful and it's fantasy like, but it is capturing a very real terror of murder and misogyny and being a victim or a scapegoat. So like the fantasy element really cradles you through and like hypnotizes you into watching some really scary scenes with horrific underpinnings. It kind of removes you from the reality of the situation, but also makes you be able to mentally think about these things. Hopefully that makes sense. For this movie, anyone who watches it that has faced abuse by someone in power or authority or from greater systemic issues could feel really validated by this film. It really encapsulates the quote of art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I think that this film does that exactly. I like that quote. Yeah, I like that it's, quote. That's good. It, it made me think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so Charles Lawton's goal was to restore the power of the silent films to the talkies. And I think that he did just that. I think that this movie, it takes a lot of influence from German expressionism, that sort of beautiful, grainy, artistic movement that inspired film noir. Uh, This could certainly be in the film noir umbrella, I think. And ultimately, it's just it's one that I don't think a lot of people watch. I certainly haven't, but I think it's well worth your while. I would agree. I feel like I've never heard of this movie before, but it's a little scary. It is a little scary. It makes me jump at parts. (laughs) Definitely. And I think especially for this for the end of this Halloween season, I think it'd be worth the watch. Oh, it's, it's cool. <laughs> That's a pretty big compliment from Ben. It was it was scary. 
really? Yeah, I thought it was kind of scary. It was kind of spooky. Yeah, it, it has a lot of spooky elements to it. The main guy's a really good actor. He's very scary. Oh, Robert Mitchum? Yeah, he's very handsome. Good on-screen persona. <laughs> he's terrific. I would um, like some character development for him, you know? But here's the thing also. It is kind of like fairy tale where you know how like in a fairy tale it's really just archetypes there isn't like a whole lot of like shifts like dynamic change all the characters are relatively static as they go through these events that's kind of like the vibe you're getting here yeah you know it's very cartoonish when he gets shot in the face and then runs away (laughs) i agree there are some cartoony elements cartoon speed to run in and why would he just hide in the in the fucking uh in the darn barn or whatever instead of running away i get also why didn't she just call the cops at the start that's really dumb so many amazing questions let's just dive into this once upon a time horrific fairy story and start addressing some of those inquiries we have are we ready for the rewatch I think so. Let's do it. Okay. The rewatch. So when I began this movie, I truly had no idea what we were getting into. Like the singing, the stars, the ominous music. It kind of gave me Twilight Zone vibes. And then I saw the woman talking to the kids and it's just their heads floating in space. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be a pretty artsy movie. And probably going to give you a bigger universal message beyond the story we're just getting. It's weird. It's a weird little movie. Is that, (laughs) I actually forgot about the woman at the start. Is that the woman we see later on who like adopts the children? It is. And it only took me until the second wash. I actually totally forgot about her. Me too. What 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 is she even talking about at the start of the movie? Uh, biblical things and it, I mean, there's a lot of biblical stuff interwoven in this movie, but, um, but I mean, like that is one of the serial killers, like big things he love and hate, but more on that in a second. But yeah, um, the second time I watched it, it was like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where it's like, Hey, Hey, I know her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So that is her. That's Rachel Cooper who we meet later on. So we'll see her a little bit later on in the film. So all of those universal themes, I think, definitely checks out because we get zoomed into what's happening on Earth. And we see kids playing and then finding a dead woman. And we're we're right in there. And then we get introduced to the pastor who is driving, driving along, handsome guy, supposedly talking to God about widows and going on to the next one. So I think between the dead woman in the first scene and hearing him talk like about that, um, we're able to put it together that he's killing women, specifically widows, and taking their money. And he does have this hate towards women, but it's his own, and yet he's blaming it kind of on God. He's such a loser. I don't know if he's blaming God. I feel like he. God. He is putting the ownership, I think, on him. Yeah, I think he's like he's uh, through his actions and his words. I think he's trying to say that like he's doing what God wants him to do by punishing any woman, scandalous women. That's what he wants. Yeah, dead husbands. 
Yeah. It, it, at the at the end of the day, it's just what he wants to do, right. but he doesn't want to take ownership of it. So he's like, oh, God told me. So, yep. uh, which is, I think, a big thing that you see when you do watch, not all, but that when some true crime stories come out, you hear themes of that nature. Um, so it's interesting to see it reflected here in a fictional story. But yeah, we we get those first images of him watching the little, I don't know, burlesque show. Uh, you see his anger like coming through while watching that. And it is, I think it's a good initial scariness. And he gets busted for stealing a car and then he is incarcerated. There's a nice little arousal joke where his knife pops out during the burlesque show or whatever. Um, like it, indicating that instead of being sexually aroused, his arousals to to murder the sexually scandalous woman. Ben, that is a brilliant take there. A great capture because Thanks. that is exactly that is pretty much exactly what's going on. I think that that can be our takeaway from it. It is a pretty phallic symbol, the knife going out of his pocket. Yeah, which hey, he's going to have to get a new suit. I don't know what the hell he's thinking. <laughs> he's not. He's just overtaken with anger and, again, kind of that heightened arousal with the anger. You can also see everybody sitting up straight in that scene in the movies. I didn't even think about that, Ben. That is a very good call. Instead of a movie, it's more of a burlesque show, but still. People are captivated, which is hopefully, I think, the aim of this movie. Can Um, you imagine that was the most arousing thing back in the 1950s? Is that woman wearing tons of clothes? (laughs) One shudders at what Harry Powell would think about anything on HBO nowadays. (laughs) Don't let him watch uh, Euphoria. No, 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 sure. no, no. Um, so then we get zoomed into a completely different setting with two kids. And this is very fairy tale esque. There's flowers, it's carefree. They're playing with a doll. Um, la di da da, boy and a girl. And it doesn't stay that way for long because the dad rolls up and we learn that he killed two people while robbing a bank for $10,000, which is definitely quite a bit of money now, but in, like an ex- exponential amount during the Great Depression. Well, I looked it up and it's about like 150 grand now. That's not a lot of money. Which is not that much money. During the Great Depression? I mean, yeah, but I... I just don't know that many people who would be that excited. I guess if you could just magically have 150 grand in cash, that would be good. But at a time when no one has money, yeah, it's really not that much buying power. <laughs> I think that we're, you know, we haven't lived through the Great Depression. Okay. We've lived through recession, though, and I think that right now. that money back then would have been life changing okay. for someone with nothing. And I'm super impressed with the casting here in terms of looks, because I do think that John, the kid looks a lot like the dad, Ben. I would agree. Oh, I was just going to ask how they fit 10 grand in that stupid little doll. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess it would fit, but they like keep putting it in like, and it just falls out so easily. Like what they just stuff it in the center and her doll just has a huge cut in it. I think, I mean, it looks like a pretty decently big doll, in my opinion. I want to know what happens to the money in the end. Do you think he gives it to the lady taking care of them, or do they have a little trust fund situation? 
I'm going to bet that the government repossesses it. What? They wouldn't. That's what they do with stolen money, I think. <laughs> it's the little kid's money. <laughs> I His dad so stole pissed. it for him. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I get it's not cool to steal, but at a certain point, it became uh, the cute little girl's money. So you can't have it. <laughs> What's her name? Like Pearl Harper? Pearl, Pearl yeah. Harper? <laughs> Pearl Harper. <laughs> It sounds a lot like Pearl Harbor, so jot that down. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I feel like the government would take $10,000 from a cute little That's girl. Fucked up. That's <laughs> fucked up. Fuck you. <laughs> the kids went to hell and back for that money. It's not their money. doesn't matter. I, what What's the little saying? Like, possessions is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> they should get to keep it at that point. They, they don't. The bank doesn't need it anymore. If anyone knows if it's addressed in the book, hit us up. We want answers. Honestly. Uh, but yes, the dad is taken away also and incarcerated. A scene that will be just embedded in little John's mind forever. And as fate would have it, the serial killer pastor and the robber father are cellmates. And Harry, the pastor is, well, pastor, I put in quotations, is really pushing to find out where the money is. And I think it's interesting in this scene because right off the bat here, Ben is questioning what type of religion he's preaching. Like, what, what, like, what are you standing for? And the response is that it's something that he worked out between himself and God. And I think that this could absolutely be a commentary on people who maybe appear as super religious or religious fanatics and say, this is what God wants when it's something that they really want. Um, I, if we're looking at the context of like the fifties and even before the fifties um, and looking at how the, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, like the, basically the morality and religious coalitions being like, we can't show bad stuff in movies. It'll morally corrupt people. Um, I think that, yeah, you could absolutely tie that into a commentary on that. And I think that obviously today we can see some of that as well in our own social world. And ultimately, Ben is killed via capital punishment for murder. So this is another brush with murder that we see or killing someone. And we see that the, I guess executor of it all is really wrestling with it. Um, So I think this is kind of our first checkpoint in terms of reflecting on death and murder. But on that note, it gets extended a little bit to the children playing in the playground. The kids are singing a very dark song about a hangman hanging people in front of the two kids who just had their dad killed that way. That was very sad. They were so awful for that. I would be moving immediately. <laughs> you can't let your kids live in a town like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like, again, keep your eyes open because from these points forward, death and in particular, like purposeful killing of someone or something, it's just going to be recurring throughout the entire focus of the film. Uh, like these kids, these children are super casually singing about capital punishment so it is kind of showing that kids are aware of this it's not like an off-limit topic to kids kids think about death they think about murder so to me that really like brings you down a little not brings you down but grounds you to the fact that kids are aware of this stuff yeah and I poor 
John and Pearl, they're just, they're just struggling, struggling to get through life and their grief. So then we get to the house and um, we see an, this scene is another one that like, this one might be like the first jump one, but it was also because someone walked in the second, like the shadow appeared in the window and I freaked out. Uh, but yeah, John tells the story to Pearl that bears a striking resemblance to their own experiences. And I just, I love the cinematography here. I really love that shot of the window and then the shadow of a man with a hat on the window by John. It gives me a little bit of that, like, ooh, spooky. Yeah, I feel like all those scenes were just so, like, ugh. From that point forward, it just creeped me out. <laughs> yeah. Not really. This part wasn't that scary. So then we get to meet Uncle Birdie, who kind of seems like our kind, reliable adult here. And I think that that does show up in a lot of horror thriller stories where kids are involved, um, that there's one nice adult in their corner, at least. Uh, I feel like in The Shining, you have Dick Halloran, the guy that can shine with Danny. Yeah. So I think that it's like, okay, here's here's an ally. We're getting the tropes that come up in a horror movie. And we're identifying who our allies are. And Bertie drops some interesting information that a man's in town and he knew his father in prison. So I was like already surprised. Okay, I was surprised initially because I'm like, oh, that's interesting that prison was brought up and everything. Okay. Um, but it's really snaky. Like this is a snaky guy. The music is great. It cues us to be on alert. And we learned that Harry lied. He said he was working at the prison as a preacher, not an inmate. So he's already weaving a tale saying that he has this message from their late father and he was comforting the father. Uh, and it's all a lie. Yeah, man, life was so dangerous when you could have Googled somebody and find this kind of stuff out. <laughs> His was true. the time to be a murderer. <laughs> It, there's really no time to be a murderer, but um, I suppose there is I mean, an extra element of scary. You could just say your name is anything and <laughs> people will believe you, I guess. Yeah, Which is actually, I think, what happened in the real life story. He used a different name and then they realized that that different name was the same guy as the killer. Huh. Yeah, if um, I lived in the time before social media, I wouldn't trust anybody. Every, I would just assume everyone's lying about who they are. There's no... <laughs> could be a different person every day i know literally <laughs> yeah so it is scary like we're, we're we're getting a false approach and it goes back to that very beginning intro about be wary of wolves and sheep's clothing and this is exactly what this guy is he is a wolf in sheep's clothing and we get here what to me is a fine, fine piece of acting. Uh, this great little speech where Harry gives the explanation of love and hate. He has hate tattooed on his left hand, love tattooed on his right hand, or rather the knuckles, if we're being specific, um, and demonstrates that love always wins. This is just so interesting for so many reasons. Uh, it's a contrast here between someone saying something and really thinking another and how someone can twist the concept of love and hate in their head. I just Not think really. he's so lame. I don't know. He's he's such a cute guy. 
So, I mean, I'm sure I would have fallen for it, but he's just such a loser with the little tattoos of love and hate. Cause you know, he just is dying for someone to look at his hand so he can tell that story and be like, Oh, you want to know the, the little old story of love and hate? It's true. It is a conversation starter and to like show off a little bit that he's so righteous when he's really not, you know, it's like, it's again, it's kind of the sheep's clothing directly tattooed on him. And he probably has love and hate twist in his head. It's just really, really gross. Um, And for my fellow movie buffs, if you're like, huh, this scene feels really familiar. Almost the exact same speech, or it's not like the exact same, but a very, very close speech is given in Do the Right Thing with Radio Rahim. Uh, He wears the rings on his fingers, love and hate. He delivers a speech that is definitely an homage to this one. It's basically like the same, but updated to modern (laughs) linguistics. And then he demonstrates and it's all inspired by this film, which I think is really, really cool <laughs> that this film at least was culturally interesting enough to be uh, referenced in that movie because Do the Right Thing is incredible. All right. And so then he's convinced to stay with Fudge for the picnic. And I was relieved. And I didn't know that Willow would call him out on this, but like Willa does say, I think it's a little fishy. It's a little suspicious. I think he might be in this for the money. But Icy over here, her boss is like, no, you need to get married. Yeah, that woman is a bitch. (laughs) Okay. She's just, you know, I think that she has some very over-traditionalist approaches to things. And her husband was pretty cool, and she just shouted him down. Are we talking about Walt Spoon, Ben? Yeah. That was his mother, I think. No, that wasn't. I'm pretty they, sure. No. They just, in that movie, the husbands call their wives mother. It's kind of like in um the old Rudolph movie, how he's like, mama, to Mrs. Claus. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the, um, the hanging man also calls his wife mom. That's so weird. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's the just something man. they do. <laughs> I remember my grandma would do that sometimes. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. It's like representing your spot in the family. Yeah, because you're used, <laughs> I guess the thing when you're in a family, you're used to that person being referred to as dad. So you just do it. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like they had like a kid around that they were like, oh, like that is a good point. They're doing it on purpose. They're, yeah, they're, they're just saying it to each other, which is why I thought that that was his mother. And I was like, I wow. So. I'm right, right, Emma? I, you know what? I, I think that you might be right then. (laughs) Still weird. They're weird for that. Uh, so Will is cautious and then, you know, calls him over. She tries to like suss him out a little bit. Ah, and we get a very interesting twist to it. Basically it's all good. Um, and by all good, not really good. But Harry tells Willa that the dad threw it in the water. But John knows that his dad never actually told Harry the truth about money. And it confirms to John that this is a guy not to be trusted. But to Willa, she thinks this guy is to be trusted. So you get a little complicated dynamic going forward there of the 
mom being split from the kids and Pearl being a little bit on the fence, actually. Well, I feel like that's honestly pretty smart of the kid because in my head, I would just think that my dad lied to the guy. Yeah, exactly. Because why would he tell him the truth? Yeah. But I guess unless he told him the truth because he wanted him to know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it shows that this guy was not to be trusted if the dad did not give the actual location. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. So it's good stuff. And it earns Willow's trust. And she's like, I'm ready to marry this guy. I'm a quivering with cleanliness. Creepy. Yeah. Um, and I love the sub story thread with John going over to Uncle Birdie's. And every time he's there, he asks about the skiff. From a storytelling perspective, that's really cool because we can get a nod that it'll come into play later, perhaps. A boat. <laughs> Waiting on this boat. Yeah, and then we get just some really great shots going forward. I love the external shots of the house. It looks like it could be safe and cozy, but there's something scary lurking about. It's a little like, ooh, scary cottage. I love the internal shot here that comes up. It's like a precursor to Psycho, the way we get the pop out from the evil stepfather from behind John and the shadow that looms over to warn that he's coming. It's just, it's very good. I think it's a good upwards angle that we're looking at. So you're feeling kind of like, ah, no, from up above. Psycho, the movie in the hotel. Yes. Yes. The Bates Motel. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yes. Yes classic and i just love robert mitchum's subtle facial expressions here like when he's trying to get the info out of john and his eyes just get a little bit bigger and crazier and uh, (laughs) it's to me it's very good facial acting and that does require effort i don't care who you are (laughs) you could be a very naturally scary looking person but i think that that is just really, really important to notice the subtle movements because there are some big movements in here, but the subtle ones too. John is still solid. He wants to keep the secret. Pearl wants to crack. She is ready to crack on this one. Okay. I'm going to say right here, right now, Pearl is like, besides Robert Mitchum, uh, she's one of the best actors in this movie. (laughs) Uh, because I was so infuriated every single time she's like, oh, he's our he's our daddy. No, no, Pearl, <laughs> shut up. Just shut up. Listen to your brother. Don't be dumb. Don't be a dummy. Well, it's interesting, too, that you say that because apparently there's mixed things. I've I've heard that Charles Lawton wasn't super crazy about working with the kids, in particular, the girl that played Pearl. Um, There's some that say that Robert Mitchum did a little bit more directing with those scenes. Um, But then there's others that are like, no, Charles Lawton was very hands-on with all of it. What I think we do know for certain, though, is that Charles Lawton would get really frustrated with Pearl, or well, the girl that plays Pearl. Um, And so it got to the point in some cases where like she was so scared of Charles Lawton, allegedly, that he requested that the cameras just keep rolling, even though like they would end a scene. And her reactions are actually that to Charles Lawton and not Robert Mitchum out of fear. Oh, that's crazy. So some of those shots might be to her reacting to the director. 
Okay, so it's not even like necessarily that she's good at acting. She's just horrified, <laughs> horrified in real life. <laughs> it could be a mix. I mean, she's adorable. She plays a perfect little adorable kid who's easily manipulated. She's pretty cute. I'm surprised that she wasn't in anything else in her life, really. She was in one other thing, I think, but that was it. Yeah. Yeah. The abusive relationship between Willa and Harry begin as soon as they're married. Like on the wedding night, Harry starts mentally and emotionally manipulating Willa to the extreme right then and there. He gives her on their wedding night, he gives her this sexist lecture, but it's done in a very, very intriguingly evil way, in my opinion, where he says her body is a temple for creation and motherhood and not for men and their, you know, lusty desires. And I think at first blush, you would think like, oh, that's him being gallant and noble, but it's full on manipulation because he's not saying that her body's her own or for her own pleasure. It's he thinks that that's wrong. He thinks that women engaging in sexuality for pleasure is disgusting. And so he's like taking her ownership off her own body off of her. So I, I, it's disgusting. I think he's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's like a disgusting speech, but it's disguised as putting men as the aggressors, but he's really blaming women. Well, yeah, it's just, it's, kind of just well not kind of it's very disgusting to claim that women's bodies can and should only be used to create new life yeah and which that's is wrong it. that's ugh, it and it's like gross. that's like it's icky it's really icky of him i know but he's like oh you know but he's saying that men are the problem but he's really thinking women are the problem so i can see where this would mess with her head yeah she's also just not very bright <sighs> You could be super bright. And I think that if you're into someone super good looking and I mean, her husband did also say she didn't have any common sense. I mean, she is definitely oh. his words, not mine. Willa had it rough with the men in her life. It would seem. Yeah. I, I think Willa's a victim in more ways than one here. Um, and then we, we see her starting to become kind of like a preacher subsidiary. She, we get a tent service where she's been brainwashed into believing she's the cause of her husband committing crime, that she's like the root of all this evil. But we know that those are really Harry Powell's thoughts. Very spooky, but like, hopefully people can reflect on that, that that is not what actually happened, that this was like the greater evil behind her forcing her to believe these things. Um, and then we go back to the kids. Pearl is making paper dolls out of money. Yikes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I think I actually yelled at the screen when I saw her cutting that up. I was like, what? No common sense from her. She's, she's a kid. She doesn't know. Oh. Um, I just Could you imagine cutting up a dollar bill in the Great Depression? Like that? No. Oh my gosh. It was unbelievable. Uh, but this scene is great suspense because I love it when they're trying to put the money back in the doll, but Harry, the stepdad is coming out and you're like, get it in the doll. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. How did he not see? I, I but I also thought it was very whimsical that the two, I, I, I was thought that they would come back into play, but that the two dollars that she cut up into dolls mm. flew like right by his legs and he didn't even see them. Mm-hmm. It's uh, oof, oof, very captivating. I love this shot too, where we only get the view of Harry's legs. It kind of gives this symbolic, overpowering 
figure that he is to the kids and what the child's point of view looks like. So that's really great. And then we get into kind of the night that starts it all. Will is on her way home. Her mindset is just completely shattered and bent. Uh, She's talking about being proud to carry a burden and all this stuff with her kids and life. And uh, so she leaves icy for the last time. And I just, I love this shot. I think it feels really mystical and ominous with the fog. And the following scenes really amp it up here. So much tension. Harry is trying to get the location of the money out of Pearl. And he's trying to turn Pearl against John. And oh, like, I don't know. You feel a lot of pressure here. And John hits Harry with a hairbrush. And then he takes her and the doll away. And you're like, is she going to spill it? Oh, my gosh. Well, because I just. Pearl is so small and young and innocent. She doesn't understand what's happening. So I can't blame her. But I was just, oh, I was infuriated. So cute. She's a great kid. We found a very cute kid to play the role. Yeah, like, I feel like I would trust a guy that looks like Robert Mitchum. (laughs) (laughs) So if I were Pearl, I would also be, like, ready to share all my secrets with him. Yeah, so then we get Willa, and this is, to me, a great shot of the house from the outside. It kind of reminds me of The Exorcist a little bit, coming through the fog, the lighting with the, you know, the street light or the lamp light, her listening outside the door, but then she hears Harry hit Pearl trying to find out where the money is, and I think that that shatters her mind a little bit about who Harry is. And then we get the bedroom scene, which is to me one of like, again, I, I, there are a lot of really good and interesting visual scenes in this movie, but this one is just so dark and so visually captivating. The bedroom, you have the A-frame of the room, brilliant use of lights and shadows. This scene in particular reminds me of the silent pictures and the German expressionism style. Because in this scene, we get big, exaggerated movements, like he's reaching up and then he goes kind of exaggerated up when he's about to stab Willa. And to me, that reminds me of the really big movements that you would have had to do in the silent pictures because you're not talking to get people paying attention. So it is a little exaggerated, but it's definitely supposed to feel that way and be that way to keep you on the edge of your seat. Uh, I really, really like that scene I don't like what happened in it but I really like the scene because I felt like at least the aesthetics of how they shot the room it really reminded me of like a chapel Mm -hmm. and so like it was interesting to see him kind of doing his like preach preacher in quotes uh sort of thing where he's like he's still continuing to preach like oh woman cannot be promiscuous they need to obey blah 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 and then going to stab her. I mean, he was just going for it. Ah, yeah. And it like the way it's shot gives this the surreal like quality to it. And I think it does remove you a little bit from the actual reality of it, where you can contemplate the actual act of murder a little bit more. Great observation, babe. Thanks. Thanks. Ben, what do you have to say? Oh, it was a very scary scene. I, um, you know, I, I was hoping she'd like 
fight back or something, but I was wrong, and she just sat there and did nothing. I, I no, think we're not wrong. blaming women. <laughs> yeah, she is not the problem. I, I do wish that they made the character choice for her to like have a break and then realize like, oh my gosh, he's been lying this whole time and fight him back. And obviously they didn't, which I think honestly added to the story more because it shows just how easy it is to get wrapped up in his wiles and his lies. So, and I mean, he, she did kind of realize it then and there, like, but she was just subdued to it all where she was just kind of like at this mental point of exhaustion. And while she wasn't aggressively fighting back, even just the most subtle, like her expressing it out loud was enough for him. Yeah. So moving forward, the next day, Harry reports that Willa drove off and left the family in the car. Now, I've seen a few episodes of Dateline in my day, and I don't (laughs) think that that's what happened. Not so much. She did drive off in a way. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if that woman abandoned her kids. Oh, my God. She sucks. Um, and then we really see the wolf in sheep's clothing come out. He's all, woe is me. My wife left me and I'm, I'm just going to watch these two kids all by my lonesome. And, and Icy's falling for it. And he's very charming and good looking. He, how could you not have a soft spot for him? I mean, when I look at him, I feel like I see a cross between Miles Teller and Tyler Cameron. How could you not fall for him? And be like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's really funny. I mean, you're yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I do so respect um shoot, what's his name? I so respect Walt Spoon for being like, seems a little shady. Agreed. Agreed. Thank goodness off. for yeah. Walt. I know there are there's some he's very smart the best, He's the most competent guy in the in the whole movie. And he's not that competent. Do you think because he's a straight man, he's able to see through the deceit of like the charming, good looking guy that he's presenting to the women, Ben? Um, yeah, I think he also just thinks about stuff critically and is like, wow, this doesn't make any sense at all. While his wife is just kind of, I, I will say her sexism is clouding her, thinking that a woman can't survive without a man. I think that she just thought he was so darn handsome and charming that, catch. that obviously she wouldn't be able to see through it. She's just like, oh, if I was her, I'd be all over him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we see why it is so tricky. We get another extremely visually captivating scene, in my opinion. Willa submerged underwater in the car with her hair flowing in the seaweed. Really scary. Creepy and scary and really unlike anything I've seen from any other movies of this time when this came out. I was thinking about how unique that shot was, I feel, for that time. I mean, that's like something I feel like we'd see in movies today. Not even. I wish we saw scenes with that visual intricacy (laughs) yeah I don't know it's it's really really unlike anything I've ever seen actually when I was watching this you know I think when you watch a movie you can kind of pick out when it came out based off the cinematography of it this one I think is a little confusing because it came out in the 1950s 1955 but it does look very much like the pictures from the 1920s and 1930s 
So it is a little bit, I don't know. It's just really different and unique. Fun fact about this scene, it was filmed in a water tank and that's actually a dummy. That's not actually Shelly Winters. Um, Some guy was so convinced he thought it was Shelly Winters just holding her breath underwater. (laughs) It's really good acting, but no, it's the dummy shot in a water tank. Well, that was honestly really impressive because it clearly, it looked like her. Yeah. I need to know who made this dummy because they were brilliant artists they were and honestly I'm just impressed that they were able to shoot that in a water take I don't know I'm just I was really impressed by the shot overall I feel like before that point obviously everything in the movie had been like getting like really scary like just the anticipation like you know he's a bad guy but actually Mm -hmm. seeing Mm -hmm. that he went through with killing her and seeing her underwater that like really like got me that really yep. cut to my core I was like I was shaken up it raised the stakes for sure and I actually as dark as that scene is I appreciated being in there I mean especially given the context of I mean the production code's not as powerful at this point in time but like given how much censorship was in movies like up until this point it's very jarring and it raises the stakes and it did make me very concerned for the children to know that that is what their fate could look like. Yeah, cuz at first you think, oh, you know, well, not that it's okay, but it, he's just doing it to women, but it's like, oh no, he's seriously a crazy person yep. and he will do anything it takes to get this money. Ugh. Even even when Ugh. it comes to killing a woman who has no idea where the money is or access to it. No, it made it made me shudder. This was a lot. Um, and poor Uncle Bertie finds the car slash the body. Not hidden exceptionally well, I would say, but uh, <laughs> that's that is the clearest water I've ever seen. <laughs> well, and it's a and it looks like he just put it right in the bank, so it's like two feet under the water. Yeah. Um. So it was bound to be found. Bertie like, is also a dummy. He, no, but this is and so like look, hard. I would probably go about things differently if I were him. But also, like, think about it. This happens all the time. Uncle, it's a common predicament. When you find the body, you're, like, automatically on the list of suspects. Yeah. I guess. But, but- I mean, it's not like he had any motive to kill her. Plus, ah, actually, I guess it looks like maybe she ran herself off the road. But didn't they at one point say that her neck was slit? Yes. And you okay. can see that in the dummy. And like, if they did the autopsy, they'd be able to see that. Um, and the mom are equally culpable for these kids having such a terrible life. They are so bad at everything. They're just Marty is trying to be helpful. He, he was, was not trying to. He did the opposite of be helpful. He was he scared. Got, yeah, he was horrified. He's he a grown man. He should have figured it out. No, you guys are too charitable with these people who ben, are bad. Ben, are you telling me that if you walked into our apartment and you saw a dead body, that you wouldn't be freaked out and be concerned and not want to go to the law? And I wouldn't drink you, myself into a stupor. I would try to. I think you would drink yourself into a stupor because you'd be so not. freaked out. Ben, you said it so yourself. It's very easy to get away with me, and it's it'd be just as easy to be blamed for murder back then. I know, you know? But you got to take, you got to try. You but know that. You know her kids. Like he's you know also and like look, it's again. I probably wouldn't have done what he did, but I can get being scared because 
with people. And he has nothing to lose. It's not like he has kids of his own. Who cares if he ends up getting, he's like 90. Wants to go to jail regardless if you have kids or not. I'm just saying he's a dumb, he's a, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say he's a loser. He's a coward. He's a coward is what I Okay. But I can see where he's scared because take Uncle Birdie, this guy that lives alone on the riverbank, probably a little bit of an outsider, older guy, and then take this young, hot preacher who's been nothing but like the town's favorite. Which one do you think that they're going to place the blame? You got to try. Well, you have to try. Like, once again, you guys are too charitable with these people. They're grownups. Like they have to try. I think we're just more realistic than you are, Ben. All I'm yeah. saying okay, is I get this... I get where he's scared. Oh, most people scared. do That's like funny. most people do report a murder. Like you would report the murder if you saw a dead body in your apartment. We all would. But I think that you, it would take a minute to be like, oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, but I would do it before drinking myself into a stupor. I would actually probably check on the kids first. All right. Well, well report it and then go check on the kids because I'm a functioning adult member <laughs> of society. I get it. I would too. But I all I'm saying is I get where Birdie's coming from and we're moving forward. So from here on out, it's basically, yeah, Cinderella, Hansel, and Gretel with a serial killer element. I would say that's also an element of fairy tales. It's just kids being put in danger because of incompetent adults who don't see the wolf coming. Yeah, I guess that's that's fair. Everyone in this town sucks hard. Oh, yeah. No, that's why they needed to leave. And then there's just really great creepy scenes going forward with him acting really friendly. He's singing his religious song. He's putting on this front to Icy. He does. Yes, he does have a good voice. So talented. It's Um, like Bradley Cooper sings all of his songs in uh, what what movie am I thinking of? A Star uh, is Born. Star is born. Yeah. <laughs> you have yet to see A Star is Born, Ben. I haven't, but Cyril never shuts up about how great he is. <laughs> okay. I do want to see oh. the new Star is Born. It's good. We can, we can have Let's a movie, right? More vintage art choices, too, like the iris. It's just giving this feeling of an unspecific time, which I think makes this movie feel really timeless where you can watch it today. I think that the dinner scene that comes up is fantastic, brilliant acting. I love this scene. It's terrifying. Robert Mitchum and his reacting acting is just so scary. When he like slams the table and says like, never mind what John says. And when he's manipulating Pearl and telling it's her fault that he lost his temper and and then he like does really quick ones too where it's not like booming and powerful but like when he just quickly to john goes like i thought i told you to keep your mouth shut like that could be acted today and come out today and be just as impactful very timelessly horrifying no i honestly i would love to see a remake of this movie just for that scene alone (laughs) because like that entire scene between him and the kids i my heart was just racing i just was like oh my god they need to get out of here right now right now it's it's a lot and then they go down to the cellar there's an axe by the door in the cellar there's apples and a candle it's very evil spooky fairy tale but i guess okay to be fair and I guess, uh, but there is two of them, which makes it more difficult because they both know. I was going to say he can't kill them because he won't be able to find the money then. But if he kills one of them or threatens to kill the one, then the other one's going to give it up. So it's just, uh, uh, if there I mean, was he only, only one needs kid, Pearl. 
Yeah, no, it's just like he only needed one. Yeah, he really only needed Pearl. John was never going to tell. Uh, it's really sad when he calls Pearl like a dumb, disgusting wench or whatever. Yeah, it makes cry. He's an evil man. He he's, really does hate women. He really needs to let that go. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? But um, that's just not what this guy is. He is just full of the hate while preaching that love always wins. Them in the cellar. Yeah, that whole interaction, the trying to threatening to kill John and getting Pearl to it finally admit it was in the doll. Like, <laughs> just I, you guys just have to see for yourself. This scene is very scary. Um, the entire cellar scene, in my opinion, is very scary. Oh, it's so scary. Honestly, I think I would have just given up the doll. I don't think <laughs> I need the money that bad. I like. If I was dealing with this entire like situation, I'd be like, I don't, I, it's just not worth it. It's just not. Uh, it's really not. I would think he was going to kill me after the doll thing, which well, is exactly, that's exactly. fair. Exactly. That's but fair. Like, doll, your money is your only leveraging power. Is it true? I don't know. Maybe like you could like take half the money out and leave it there and then escape in the middle of the night. But then again, he like never sleeps. John so. is a dummy. I mean, John is like nine. So I'm going to cut him some slack, but they really should have moved the money. I guess, I guess it was good that it was in such a movable package, you know? Yeah. It, it, I see a lot of different sides to it. It's a very complicated situation. John finally gets to like outsmart him a little bit. They knock him out for a second them trying to escape him from the cellar. It looks like it's out of a cartoon, but I like it. This is also very vintage-like imagery from the 1920s. The exaggerated movement, acting like the hands out, trying to get the kids. Yeah, they very much make him act like a very terrible villain in his acting when he's chasing them. Well, yeah. I was just screaming at the, the screen, like, come on, Pearl! <laughs> you're your kid your legs can work a little bit better than that i know she was running so bad she was so bad i think she feels complicated though where she still has an attachment and affection for harry it's very you a disgusting up. little wench or whatever you gotta get she's out of there pal. abused she's manipulated she's a kid she doesn't understand that that isn't I love this argument for that one because she is five harry trying to break down the doors they're running away Poor Pearl just wants to sleep. It's just mwah. chef's kiss. A great scene. Very, very full of anticipation and fear evoking. So the runaway on the river. Um, okay. I would say that the first half of this movie is like very, very scary, captivating. I think it does slow down a little bit from this point forward, to be completely honest. Not that it's bad, um, but it does lose a little bit of steam when you're not in the height of the action. Um, so the runaway on the river. This is so Cape Fear, both old and new. If you like either of those movies, I think this movie would be great for you. Uh, again, like I said, I think this character is the... Um, Harry Powell character is very much the origin to the Max Katie um, and the river escape that goes down in that movie. Lots of strong influences. Ben, have you seen Cape Fear? I've heard of it. I've never seen it though. Oh, he's seen the newer one. I'm pretty yeah. sure he has seen the newer one. He hasn't what? seen the Don't older speak one. for me. I haven't seen it. You definitely have seen it. <laughs> What's it about? It's kind of like this movie, honestly. It's a, it's a psychopathic guy that's 
terrorizing this family and following them and like trying to sneak into their house and oh, like i do like that movie where he's like the lawyer or whatever yeah i told you oh i do like that movie that movie's good <laughs> yeah i think they're i think that this is very similar especially to the new one does the whole family survive at the end of that movie spoilers for cape girl yes good of the that. new one yeah. uh, everyone survives in that family except for their dog oh yeah the dog is a casualty because i remember doesn't the dad kill him on the boat or whatever uh, uh he technically drowns yes <laughs> being technical yeah he's like a preachery character who's yeah interesting and see those kids don't have to do it by themselves look at that uh but yes no i really do like the river scenes this beautiful imagery with the stars and the river and the spider webs and the frog and the cattails and the sheep beyond the fence and the lily pads and the creepy child singing voice Pearl has. I know that doesn't sound like a compliment, but it is. All the river sequences are pretty gorgeous and does take you to this sort of like ethereal element. And what's kind of ironic is that the kids end up begging for food from people, which is exactly what their father wanted to avoid by stealing that money. But because of him stealing the money, they're exactly in that position because of it. That's kind of an interesting artistic storytelling aspect to this. Um, and then we get like more murder, death, killing references. Like they see the turtle. That's really cute. And John's like, you can make soup out of them, but I wouldn't know how. So here we're seeing kids even thinking about the idea of killing this animal for survival and the cycle sort of repeating itself, like killing for survival and that coming up. They find this refuge in a beautiful little bucolic area and then they're like hiding in that barn and the song leaning, which is Harry's equivalent of the Jaws theme song comes on and we learn he's catching up. Beautiful, surreal shot here. I love the silhouette of him on the horse kind of steadily, creepily going by, catching up. And we get that great line from John of like, doesn't he ever sleep? <laughs> which is very accurate. This shot was really interesting. I think that they got a person of smaller stature on like a pony or something and like did a little size proportion. Oh, that is cool. Um, view. So it's, yeah, it's just unique how they did that and all this stuff before computers. It's just, I love the inventiveness. Then they fall asleep and they get to a little, little area and a woman fetches them out of the riverboat. And it's, it's like a literal mother goose. There's a cottage, there's geese, there's a picket fence. <laughs> Uh, there's a bunch of kids there and she decides to take them in and take care of them. And she's watching all these poor orphans and kids whose parents are too poor for custody. Cool. I, I liked I it. I, I think it was a good direction to take it. I mean, I don't know if I were the kids, I probably wouldn't keep going down the river <laughs> and the go same back direction up. that I, I would, well, I try to go back up, but you can't, it's not that easy. <laughs> I might have just stayed in the barn. If you see that he's walking past you, I would have just stayed in the barn a little bit longer. Yeah, I kind of agree. But I but. get also being freaked out. I would also probably want to run, but it's just so risky. Oh. No, I will say, I know this is kind of getting a little ahead. I thought that maybe, maybe there was going to be a connection between rachel cooper and harry powell like i thought mm. that maybe it was gonna be like he was her kid that like hasn't oh. Christmas. 
I thought it was going to be like that. So like he was like returning home to see her only to find the kids. I thought that's what the connection was going to be. And frankly, I kind of liked that more. If the movie was made now, it would have been that. (laughs) You know what? I agree. If the movie was made now, it would have been like all connected. I like because I thought it was so weird. It's like, oh, why are they talking about some random kid of hers? Oh, my God, that must be her kid. Um, But lo and behold, it wasn't. So I think. I think it was all just like to give her motivation for wanting to take care of kids. Like her son rejected her love and stuff. And so she decided yeah. to fill her I mean, own. It seems like he just works somewhere like, else. I don't know. <laughs> I bet there's a little more to the story than that. that bad who knows? Maybe he is a serial killer too. And we just don't know. <laughs> Not that easy to just, there weren't planes back then. It took a little while to come home for Christmas. <laughs> um. Yeah. So that's kind of going on. They're venturing into town and Ruby, one of the abandoned children has other sorts of adventures in town boys. So that's a little bit of a complicated thing going on for her. And then we're back at the house. Rachel gives the story of Moses and I, I completely should have put this together. How many biblical moments and references this movie has the children, you know, out to be killed, finding refuge in a barn. It's kind of like the story of like Jesus's birth and being fished out of the carry of the river, like Moses. It's all they're showing that they're like aligned with these biblical heroes, I suppose. And then we have Ruby doing her stuff in town, finding boys. So this scene of Ruby going into town, this feels the most 1950s to me. It's got like that cool imagery of the 20s and 30s movie, but it's like a very 50s approach. That town um, looks very fake, made I, up all the sides. I like the mix. It's very, you can tell it's like kind of seedy at night. It's, it's almost like Susian in, in its weird signage placement. And actually the little boy that's in town, not little boy, the young man that's in town that, you know, Ruby's connected with is Ashley Buzz Gunderson from Rebel Without a Cause. So look at that. (laughs) Look at that. But she is whisked away under the evil spell of Harry who gets to town and gets Ruby to tell him about John and Pearl. And she gives their location whereabouts away. And Ruby knows she like messed up. (laughs) (laughs) and ruby comes clean to rachel and she says she's been lying about sewing lessons and sneaking off with boys in town and rachel's response is literally every kid that sneaks out's dream from their parents like oh i get it like i get you're just looking for love but you're gonna grow up great and you're amazing and it would be it is it is the complete opposite to how Harry responds to women looking for love and sexuality. It shows a completely different view of womanhood. It does. So I like the contrast there. So the showdown happens between Harry and Rachel when he shows up. And she's she's the first one to call him out on his BS. Well, I, yeah, I love the scene where he's like, oh, I see you looking at my little tattoos. Let me tell you the story. I, She's I like, love no. that they interrupt the story. She's like, I don't want to hear this stupid shit right now. You're so yeah. annoying. Exactly. She's just like, no, I don't care. I don't care about your story. Who are you? Get, get out of here. She can see someone for who they are on the inside. It's like, very it's- sad that Ruby runs it up to him and gives him a hug. I feel for her. All right, Pearl. Uh, yeah, Pearl. Sorry. Yeah. She she Pearl's Pearl's gonna be dealing, I think, with a lot of 
issues for her whole life based on these pretty interactions. Young. I think she'll probably forget about it, all this stuff. Well, her mom getting murdered, her dad going to jail and being hung, and then her new dad trying to kill her. I think she'll forget. It's such traumatic childhood. And then also having to go upstream down a river and then being an orphan. I feel like, I mean, I don't know. Those are a lot of big things to happen. I think she's a very cool mother now. Well, and okay. And that's, what's really cool. I think we get the contrast. Like I think in a traditional story, like in a traditional fairy tale, the hero is always like the younger hot guy. And the evil person is always like the older woman. Think about it. Like sleeping beauty, snow white, like Hansel, any of it. And this is reversed. The older woman who we've like villainized in traditional stories is the hero. And the good looking young guy is the villain. It's brilliant. It's great. It's like an inverted fairy tale. I love it. Um, Yeah. So she wins this time, but he says he'll come back. And the remainder of all of this reminds me so much again of Cape Fear. Um, what? If they didn't have a phone, it would be much more believable that the cop that she wouldn't have immediately called the cops. But they had a phone. She just yeah, called the cops. He could have also just her. gone away. She's just like also like a can-do woman. Like she will yeah. take care of it on her own. She didn't need the cops to come in muddying up her floors, Ben. It's pretty unsafe though not to call the cops. A, it wouldn't make for a good fictional story. B, You're you right. know, let's say let's say the police show up. How long are they going to wait there for someone to maybe come or not? Like Harry could leave indefinitely and then come back at any moment. That is actually a pretty decent point. Good job, Emma. Yeah, I know. So all of this is great suspense. He's outside singing. They're all inside the house. Rachel's guarding the house in her rocking chair with a gun. It's just like great. She starts singing the song from her point of view. Um, The only difference I think I see in the song is she says, Jesus in it and he just says leaning like she says leaning on Jesus and he just says leaning. Good yeah. singer. Yeah, I would have shot him while he was out on the fence. Dang. Yeah, I, I probably would have shot him too honestly. I think that he would need to like be actively invading their house versus just waiting outside of it. Well, but how is anyone going to know? The only witness yeah, the, the body inside. I would, yeah, they I had just, forensic science back then. I think it wasn't that they, good. I mean... <laughs> I I don't know. I think I would have just shot him. I the think that's, I think that's a good enough reason. He's clearly terrorizing them and threatening to hurt the kids. Because earlier, he tried to chase one of them under the porch with a knife. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. she has all the right in the world to shoot. She should have shot him right there. Yeah, I would have. It's. I mean, shot it's like what happened. But like, think about the new Cape Fear. They don't call the police. Like, I don't know. It's whole whole thing but um we do get another reference to murder and survival like that owl attacking i think it was a bunny and then okay this isn't it's like maybe a slight criticism or something that i think was i wish would have been done a little differently i wish they had done less river scenes and done a little bit more of suspense scenes from inside the house like hearing a noise or something i just i love it when the light goes out and then we can't see him anymore and he's gone. Yeah, it's like, like the ah! glare, the glare yeah. of the whatever. It's yeah. I think that they could have done more like inside the house sort of scariness. Yeah. But it all kind of works out. The police do end up coming. Thanks to the cat. The cat saves the day <laughs> and bites Harry. Harry's arrested. John has a trauma response. He feels like he's watching his dad get arrested all over again. Absolutely. And it like sparks this emotional 
response from him of mixed up feelings and views. Yeah. And so then it's just kind of like summed up from there. The trial happens uh, during the trial, the crowd's chanting Bluebeard, which is a reference to like a French folk story about basically a widow killer, like a man that marries women and kills them. So it is a little bit confusing. I think that like the mob and riot scene can be a little confusing. It's so confusing. I was watching it and I thought that they wanted to attack the little boy for going on trial. It it was just so confusing because they broke in through the window right where the kids, like all the orphans were sitting. Mm-hmm. They broke into the window for that restaurant. So I was like, why are they chasing after these poor children who are just traumatized nonstop? But I guess it was for, I guess it was because of Harry, but that's still so weird. Yeah, I agree. The first time I watched it, I was a little confused. I thought that like Harry was just so powerful that they were like blaming the kids. <laughs> no, I, but, I, but. I genuinely brainwashed the entire town, which honestly, kind of, I would have liked that even better. I don't know. There's a lot of different things that I would have done. Yeah. So I don't know. It is a little bit of a confusing scene, but the biggest takeaway for me um, is the mob and riot in the streets. And it just, again, made me kind of tie back to do the right thing. And I wonder if do the right thing referenced this when it told itself as well. Like I'm watching these riots happen about this guy, about this killer who killed a woman, a white woman. And let's keep this in mind. Like, as far as I can tell, these are all white people. They're breaking things and roaming the streets and yelling and shouting. And like, there's, I don't know, they're holding all sorts of debris of sorts and I, I go back to do the right thing. And it's like, I think it's showing the contrast with that movie, because in this movie, it's like perfectly acceptable that they're taking out their anger in this way. But then in do the right thing, it's criticized when people of color are taking out their frustrations over a murder over a black man in their community. Yeah. And then it's weird because then we get the hangman saying he's excited about this capital punishment, which like. Uh, it just makes you think for a second, you know, like there's so much death in it and it's all viewed so differently. Well, I think he feels bad about killing the thief. I guess the thief did kill two guys. That was pretty not by me. I think but- the difference is that he felt bad because he was then leaving a woman and her kids behind. Mm-hmm. Like, and he was killing someone who like was in a family, whereas Harry is just a bad guy through and through no family just going around murdering people yeah it's uh it's it just makes you think it's just thoughts on death and murder and then we get this happy little ending it's all resolving i love it when a fall thriller scary movie resolves by the holiday season it kind of has this little sense of like renewal and joy at the end john wrapped up an apple giving it to rachel just so wholesome that that's his gift again fruit apple kind of a biblical thing there um and at when it ties up the message in the end is like rachel's talking about the resilience that kids have and their endurance don't know if i entirely agree with that because we clearly see these kids being traumatized and i think that all of the events in this film will affect them for the rest of their lives um and need a lot of healing but I mean, it, they survived it. All the uh, all the dummy adults died like dummies. I mean, essentially, it is a nice message of like pulling through and knowing you can survive during difficult times. But I think 
in reality of all of this, the kids would need a lot of healing and inner child work and reframing their minds about love and hate. Yeah, yeah it'll be so okay. Well, so that's that's our movie. That's basically Night of the Hunter. And I just I think it's a brilliant one. I think it's so unique. It's so artistic. It's not like anything else you really see during the 50s. I highly recommend checking it out. I really, really enjoyed that movie. I mean, it's honestly, it's a quick watch. And I feel like it it, it it's a little scary. And I think that anyone could really enjoy it. I think it's great. Isabel, where can they find us on social media? I am so glad you asked. On Instagram, they can find us at Old Soul Movie Podcast. On Twitter, they can find us at Old Soul Pod. And on Facebook, they can find us at the Old Soul Movie Podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you all so, so much for joining us on this one. We hope it was a good creepy tale as we're in this dark and scary season. I am just so excited for watching a new movie. I love taking in something I've never seen before for the first time. And if you haven't seen it, I can't wait to hear your thoughts. So sound off on social media. Happy Halloween. And we will see you next time on the Old Soul Movie Podcast.